Welcome back to Mark's Madness. I tried to keep up. We did it again. Second run through on that one today. We got a little wild with it. it We're going to bring a different energy this week. It's going to be be a little lower. It's going to be a little, you know, calmer, I think. And then Du Bois is going to make me mad. And I'm going to ramp up to uh, an 11 and we're going to go from there. Um, That being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. Hello. We read books. Uh, My name's Nathan. My name's David. Yay. These are the voices that will be reading you your books today. Um, but before we read books, we often talk about current events. David, would you like to talk about some current events? Um, yeah, obviously, tangibly out there, everybody make sure you are being careful, max- masking up, vaccinated or not. Um, we are just seeing astronomically high uh, numbers coming out again from COVID um, with this Delta variant. Um, other than that, I don't know if we need to touch on... Cuomo. Um, I mean, do we, uh, this podcast of all? There are plenty of podcasts that will talk about Andrew Cuomo being a sex pest. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that. Di- I don't know how that. Uh, that doesn't incorporates into dialectical materialism no. or anything like that. Or uh, you know, he's a piece general of overarching flows of history. One dude's a piece of shit. Uh, we've all known he's a piece of shit, and now he's no longer the governor of uh, a state. Yay! Yay! Um, other than that, everything's on fire. So that's nice. Everything is, in fact, on fire. Uh, like it's going, the entire going globe. Real, going real, real great there. Yeah, uh, which, of course, is especially hit hard in Siberia, um, which hits some of the groups of people that, that live in, in uh, northern Siberia, or in northern Siberia, in Siberia uh, pretty darn hard, right? I mean, their homes are burning down. They don't have the regular infrastructure for forest fires. They're not used to that up there. Um, but... So that that raises particular concern, um, but other than that, I, the whole world's on fire. I don't know. <laughs> world's on fire. Andrew Cuomo's a dick, uh, and that has been your current events for the week. All right, you all wanted more book reading. You're going to get more book reading. We are starting today on the bottom of page six fourteen. The debt of these states between the time when it reached its highest point in eight and eighteen fifty. Or blah, blah, blah. The debt of these states between the time when it reached its highest point in 1880 was scaled down to $108 million. This meant that a sum of $155 million was repudiated. And it will be noted that it is almost exactly the increase in debtedness which the Reconstruction regime incurred in order to meet the increased burden of the state. Public school education, charitable institutions, the restoration of public buildings, and increased social responsibilities. There can be no possible proof that all of this increase in debtedness represented theft, nor is there any adequate reason for believing that most of it did. What happened in Southern repudiation after the war was that the Southern states proceeded to punish people who had dared to loan money to the Southern states under Negro suffrage by confiscating the sums which they had loaned. This was what they had threatened to do, and they did it with vengeance. There are certain other considerations. White Southerners were in practically complete control during the Reconstruction regime. In Virginia and Tennessee, yet in these two states, an indebtedness of $52 million in 1860 increased to $88 million before 1880, and $34 million of this was repudiated. This could hardly be charged to Negro suffrage. Then, too, in North Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama, the ex-Confederate South never lost all control and was early restored to full control. But very little of it could possibly be attributed to Negroes. In the case of Florida and Mississippi, the debt was negligible, and on the face of it, absolutely defensible. Yet large amounts were were repudiated by the Reform Party. In South Carolina, the debt stood at nearly $6 million in 1865 before Reconstruction. It reached at its highest point in 1880 nearly $25 million, and of this, $17 million was repudiated. If any large proportion of it represented theft, it represented as much the illegal graft of northern moneylenders as the theft of money actually received by the state. Arkansas, under a government in which the Negro had almost no part, repudiated $12 million out of its $18 million of indebtedness. The whole debt transaction of the South after Reconstruction seemed to show that many of the accusations of unreasonable debt and the hate they repudiation were a blow aimed at northern finance rather than a proof of Negro extravagance. It was openly said in Louisiana that it was fitting that the Northerners who tore down the basis of its former prosperity should share some of the ills. Sir George Campbell said, 
All the carpetbag governors are, as a matter of course, accused of the grossest personal corruption. And as soon as they fall from power, it is almost a necessity that they should fly from criminal prosecutions instituted in the local courts under circumstances which give little security for fair trial. On the whole, then, I am inclined to believe that the period of carpetbag rule was rather a scandal than a very permanent injury, and there was more pilfering than plunder on a scale permanently to cripple the state. Indeed, in most cases, the testimony concerning stealing and corruption in the South during this time were either given by bitter political opponents who constituted themselves judge, witness, and jury, or by criminals who were clearing their own skirts by accusing others. Did it? Note well the character of the stealing in the South. In this first place, when money was appropriated even extravagantly, it was appropriated for railroads, which the South needed desperately, and it was appropriated under the same terms that had been in, that had enabled the North and in the West to get their railroads. It was appropriated for public institutions. It was appropriated for the buying of land in order to subdivide the great plantations. It was appropriated for certain public services. In all cases, the graft and dishonesty came in carrying out the fulfillment of these needs. And this was not only in the hands of white men, but southern white men as often as northern. And northern white financial agents and manipulators in Wall Street helped to make the bond sales of South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. To charge this debt to the Negroes was idiotic. It was not so charged at the time, but this came to be a popular version of the Southern corruption when it became unpopular to accuse the Northerners. So basically, as property starts sticking together and, and you've got to watch yourself, right? You can't, you can't charge your buddy across there. Uh, all of a sudden, it gets laid blame on, on the black population. Absolutely. In the original charges of graft and corruption made by the Southern Southerners, Negroes were mentioned only as tools. It was the carpetbagger and scalawags, Northern and Southern white men, who were continuously, continually and insistently charged with theft and corruption. Then as the carpetbaggers lost their power of military dictatorship, and as the prospect of alliance with the poor whites showed planters a way of re-securing the government, they turned and with the poor whites concentrated all their accusations of misgovernment and corruption upon the Negro, in order to deprive the Negro of political power. As we always say, racism stems from interest, in the interest of capital in most of mm -hmm. uh, uh, capitalism's history. Yep. Southern corruption was not the exclusive guilt of scalawags and carpetbaggers, nor were all carpetbaggers and scalawags thieves. Some carpetbaggers were noble-hearted philanthropists. Some scalawags were self-sacrificing benefactors of both Negroes and whites. Some of the scalawags and carpetbaggers lied and stole. And some helped and cooperated with the freedmen and worked for a real democracy in the South for all races. Indeed, in graft and theft, the skirts of Southern whites of all classes were not clear before or after the war. Before the war, the South was ruled by, by an oligarchy, and the f factions of the state carried on largely by individuals. This meant that the state had little to do, and its expenses were small. The oligarch state did not need to resort to corruption of the government. Its leaders, having the right to exploit labor to the limit, receive an income which makes them conspicuously independent of any income from the government. The government revenues are kept purposely small and the salaries so low that poor men cannot afford to enter into government service. So, I mean, basically, they're, they're all in the ruling class. They're all wealthy together. And the game plan is just keep the taxes low. That's how they steal anyway. They exploit the, the backs off workers. Uh, oh, every and time. In, this, in this case, and slaves they, and, who are totally free workers who they don't even consider human beings. And they do, and, and that point about making, uh, government salaries so low that poor men cannot afford to enter the government service. Yeah. Just points back to that oligarchy, that, that yeah. fact that you are ruled by, uh, that that would, you would be ruled by the ruling class every time. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, they don't have to be rich, um, all rich for it to be in their interest, right? That the government is going to serve them, but, they just do it themselves anyway because they have their own interest in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, when the oligarchy is broken down and when labor increases its power, revenue is raised by taxing the rich. And then the temptation to bribery and stealing increases according to the amount of poverty. 
The corruption in the South before the war did not usually touch the state governments. The income there was too small to be tempting, yet in Mississippi, after two receivers of public money had defaulted for $155,000, a United States Treasury agent recommended that the last one be retained, since another would probably be as bad. Other southern states had defaulting officials and shamelessly repudiated their public debts. For 30 years, during 1830 to 1860, the South was ruled by its own best citizens, and yet during that time, there were de- def- defalcations? Defalca- yeah, sure. Okay. I'll go with that. Okay. Defalcations in Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, and Arkansas among postmasters, United States Marshals, collectors, survey- and surveyors amounting to more than $1 million. How far, then, was post-bellum corruption due to Negroes? Only insofar as they represented ignorance and poverty and were thus particularly susceptible to petty bribery. No one contends that any considerable amount of money went to them. There were some reports of show and extravagance among them, but the great thieves were always white men. Very few Negro leaders were specifically accused of theft, and again, seldom in these cases were the accusations proven. Usually they were vague slurs resting on the assumption that all Negroes steal. Petty bribery of members of Reconstruction legislatures, white and black, was widespread. But Wallace in Florida shows the desperate inner turmoil of the Negroes to counteract this within their own ranks. And outstanding cases of notably incorruptible Negro leaders, like Lieutenant Governor Dunn in Louisiana, Treasurer Cardozo of South Carolina, Secretary of State Gibbs of Florida, and Speaker Lynch of Mississippi, are well known. And just to circle back, defalcation is misappropriation of funds by a by an official that's in charge of handling the money. So exactly the kind of thing that that we're talking about people being yeah. accused of in this. Yeah, in this exactly corruption. Exactly, actual real corruption. Yeah, actual real. Uh, certainly, the mass of Negroes were unbribable. Certainly, the mass of Negroes were unbribable when it came to demands for land and education and other things. The beneficent object of which they could thoroughly understand, but they were peculiarly susceptible to bribes when it was a matter of personal following of demagogues who catered to their likes and weaknesses. The mass of Negroes were accused of selling votes and influence for small sums and thus being easily bought up by big thieves. But even in this, they were usually brought up by pretended friends and not bribed against their personal beliefs or by enemies. To the principles they understood and knew, they were true. But there were many things connected with government and its technical details which they did not know. In other words, they were ignorant and poor, and the ignorant and poor can always be misled and bribed. What made the Negro poor and ignorant? Surely it was slavery, and he tried with his vote to escape slavery. As Dunning says, as to corruption under the Negro government of the South, it must be noted first. The decade when the Negroes were ushered into political life from 1867 to 77 was probably the most corrupt decade in the history of the United States and all parts of the United States. The form and manner of this corruption, which was given so unsavory a connotation to the name Reconstruction, were no different from those which have appeared in many other times and place in democratic society. At the very time, indeed, when the administrations of Scott in South Carolina and Warmoth in Louisiana were establishing the southern high watermark of rascality in public finance, the Tweed Ring in New York City was at the culmination of its closely parallel career. When we come to examine them, the charges made by such men as Rhodes, Orbel, Orbel Holzer, Dunning, Bowers, etc., even if taken at their face value, which they assuredly should not be, are charges that might with equal force be leveled against every government, federal, state, and municipal, North, South, Republican, Democrat of the time, and against the lily-white restoration governments that followed in the South with reaction. Only compare the public money stolen by the officers of Reconstruction governments with the vast sums that found their way into the pockets of the Tweed Ring in the perfectly conservative, democratic, copperhead city of New York. It may be contended that the presence of a mass of unlettered and inexperienced voters in a state makes bribery and graft easier and more capable of misuse by malign elements. This is true. But the question is, is the situation any better if ignorance and poverty are permanently disenfranchised? The whole answer of modern industrial conditions is no, it is not. And the only alternatives, therefore, is the one continually urged by Sumner, Phillips, and Stevens. If ignorance is dangerous, instruct it. If poverty is the cause of stealing and crime, increase the income of the masses. Property involves theft by the rich from the poor. 
But there comes a grave question, given a mass of ignorance and poverty, is that mass less dangerous without the ballot? The answer to this depends on whose danger one envisages. Ooh. They are not dangerous to the mass of laboring men. If they are kept in ignorance and poverty and dominated by capital, they are certainly dangerous to capital. To escape such revolution and prolong its sway, property must yield political power to the mass of laborers and let it wield that power more intelligently by giving it public schools and higher wages. It is naturally easier for capital to do this gradually, and if there could be a could have been a choice in 1867 between an effective public school system for black labor in the South and its gradual enfranchisement, or even beyond that, a property qualification for such laborers as through free land and higher wage had some chance to accumulate some property. If this had been possible, it would have been, without a doubt, the best transition program for capital and labor, provided, of course, the capitalists thus tamely yielded power. But there was no such alternative. Labor, black labor, must either be enfranchised or enslaved. Unless, of course, the United States government was willing to come in with some permanent Freedmen's Bureau to train Negroes toward economic freedom and against the interest of Southern capital. This was revolution. This was force. And no such permanent Freedmen's Bureau backed by a strongly capitalistic Northern government could have been expected in 1867. That, that, yeah. Again, I mean, that was was on point strong summary of everything we've seen so far in this book uh you know i mean deeply with class analysis there right um you know he basically said everyone would be better off if you know everybody had better education that that there wouldn't be need for revolution right people are driven to revolution for desperate measures but he also said look this was revolution this was this was violence and a revolution is not going to be supported by the ruling class. They're going to put it down. And so capital was taking interest in it, but when it stopped serving capital, it stopped. Yep. Every time. The essential problem of Negro enfranchisement was this. How far is the poor and ignorant electorate a permanent injury to the state? And how far does the extent of the injury make for efforts to counteract it? More than a million Negroes were enfranchised in 1867. Of these, it is possible that between 100,000 and 200,000 could read and write, and certainly not more than 25,000, including black immigrants from the North, could be called educated. It was the theory that if these people were given the right to vote, the state, first of all, would be compelled to discontinue plans of political action or industrial organization, which did not accord with the general plans of the North. And secondly, in self-defense, it would have to begin the education of the freedmen and establish a system of free labor with wages and conditions of work much fairer than those in vogue during slavery. How far was this a feasible social program? It was not possible, of course, if the South had the right to continue its industrial organization based on land monopoly and ownership of labor. Conceding the emancipation of labor, that emancipation meant nothing if land monopoly continued and the wage contract was merely nominal. If a wage system was to be installed, it must receive protection either from an outside power like that of the federal government or from the worker himself. So far as the worker was concerned, the only protection feasible was the ballot in the hands of a united and intelligently led working class. Could it be assumed now that the possession of the ballot in the hands of ignorant working people, black and white, would lead to real economic emancipation, or on the other hand, would it not become a menace to the state so great that its very existence would be threatened? David? It had been the insistent contention of many that the basis of the state was threatened between 1867 and 1876, and therefore the revolution of 1876 had to take place. The known facts did not sustain this contention, and it seems probable that if we have persevered a more complete story of the action of the Negro voter... I'm sorry, preserved a more complete action of the Negro voter, the facts in his favor would be even stronger." As it is, it must be remembered that the proponents of Negro suffrage did not for a moment contend that the experiment was not difficult and would not involve hardship and danger. The elections for the conventions went off, for the most part, without upheaval, with intelligence and certainty with unusual fairness. The conduct of the Negro voters, their selection of candidates, their action in conventions and early legislatures was on the whole sane, thoughtful, and sincere. No one can, with any color of truth, say that civilization was threatened or the foundations of the state attacked in the South in the years from 1868 to 1876. And again, you see him alluding to fatalism. It, that, that's always what it is when you want to uh, be racist, right? It's fatalism because if they get power, what are they going to do, right? This is kind of the, the land back, no land back thing that we deal with now. 
Yeah. Then, however, came a time of decisions. Did the South want the Negro to become an intelligent voter and participation in the state under any circumstances? Or, on the other hand, was it opposed to Negro voters no matter how intelligent and efficient? It may be said, then, that the argument for giving the right to vote to the mass of the poor and ignorance still stands as defensible, without for a moment any deny- sorry, without for a moment denying that there should not be such a class in any civilized community. But if the class is there, the fault is the fault of the community, and the community must suffer and pay for it. The South had exploited Negro labor for nearly two and one-half centuries. In ten, if in ten years or twenty years things could be so changed that this class was receiving an education, getting hold of land, exercising some control over capital, and becoming co-partners in the state, the South would be a particularly fortunate community. If, on the other hand... There had been the moral strength in the South, so that without yielding immediate political power, they could have educated and uplifted the blacks and gradually inducted them into the political power and real industrial emancipation, the results undoubtedly would have been the better. There was no such disposition, and under the profit ideal of the capitalist organization, there could not have been. That was... That would have required, after the losses of war, an industrial unselfishness of which capital organization does not for a moment admit. Force, therefore, an outside force, had to be applied, or otherwise slavery would have persisted in a but slightly modified form. And the persistence of slavery in the United States, longer than it had already persisted, would have been a calamity worse than any of the calamities, real or imagined, of Reconstruction. Consequently, with northern white leadership, the Negro voters quite co-founded the planter plan. They proved apt pupils in politics. They developed their own leadership. They gained clearer and clearer conceptions of how their political power could be used for their own good. They were unselfish, too, in wishing to include their own good, the white worker, and even the ex-master. Of course, all of that was done in constitution-making and legislation at this time was not entirely the work of black men. And in the same way, all that was done in maladministration. Maladministration? Oh, you know what? That Yeah, because malbat. Uh, maladministration and corruption was not entirely the fault of the black man. But if the black man is to be blamed for the ills of Reconstruction, he must also be credited for its good. And that good is indis- indubitable. I thought it was indisputable for a second. Uh, in less than 10 years, the basic structure of capitalism in the South was changed by the, his vote. A new modern state was erected in the place of an agrarian slavery, and its foundations were so sound and its general plan so good that despite bitter effort, the South had to accept universal suffrage in theory at least, and had to accept the public school system. It had to broaden social control by adding to the landholder the industrial capitalists. Indeed, the Negro voter in Reconstruction had disappointed all the prophets. The bravest of the carpetbaggers, Torgi, declared concerning the Negro voters, they, inst- oh, they instituted a public school system in a realm where public schools had been unknown. They opened the ballot box and jury box to thousands of white men who had been debarred from them by lack of earthly possessions. They introduced home rule in the South, they abolished the whipping post and branding iron, the stocks and other barbarous forms of punishment, which had up to that time prevailed. They reduced capital felonies from about 20 to 2 or 3, and in an age of extravagance, they were extravagant in the sums appropriated for public works. And all that time, no men's rights of person were invaded under the forms of law. The Negro buttressed Southern civilization in precisely the places it was weakest, against popular ignorance, oligarchy in government, and land monopoly. His schools more and more successful. If now he became a recognized part of the state, a larger and larger degree of social equality must be granted him. This was apparent in his demand for a single system of public schools without discrimination of race, a demand that came for obvious reasons of economy as well as for advantages of the social contract. It appeared also in the demand for equal accommodations on railroads and in public places. Ultimately, of course, a single system of public schools and state universities without distinction of race and equality of civil rights was going to lead to some intermingling and attacks on the anti-intermarriage laws, which encouraged miscegenation and deliberately degraded women. This was possi- this was a possibility that the planter class could not contemplate without concern, and it stirred among the poor whites a blind and unreasoning fury. 
The dictatorship of labor in the South, then, with its establishment of democratic control over social development, education, and public improvements, succeeded only at the expense of a taxation on land and property which amounted to confiscation, and was accompanied by a waste of public funds partly due to inexperience and partly due to the prevailing wave of political dishonesty that engulfed the whole country. The singular thing about the wholesale charge of stealing and corruption during Reconstruction times is that when government was restored to the whites and to the Democratic Party, there were so few attempts at criminal indictment or to secure any return of the loot. In North Carolina, for instance, wholesale theft was charged against the carpetbaggers, and yet when the governor and leader of the Republican Party was impeached, no charge of stealing was in the indictment. He was impeached for using the militia to put down admitted and widespread disorder and for the arrest of men who openly and impudently encouraged the disorder. In Mississippi, all that the restored government apparently wanted was to get rid of Governor Ames. They made no attempt to charge him with theft. In South Carolina, the restored government claimed to have documentary evidence of widespread stealing and graft, and they made a few indictments which were afterward quietly quashed. Why did not the fraud committee go into the courts, which they now controlled, and find out where the money they alleged was stolen had gone, and who was now enjoying it? The conclusion is almost inescapable that the fraud committee knew perfectly well that a large proportion of the thieves were now on the side of white rule, and that much of their theft had been designed and calculated to discredit Negroes and carpetbaggers. These facts and similar ones show that, they o- that the overthrow of Reconstruction was in essence a revolution inspired by property and not a race war. The echo of the Northern Reform Movement was felt in the South. It encouraged the Northern capitalists and the more intelligent Negroes to unite in a Southern Reform Movement. This was shown by the Chamberlain government in South Carolina, the Ames government in Mississippi, and less clearly by the Kellogg government in Louisiana. The carpetbag reformers moved toward an alliance with the planters and with an understanding that called for lower taxes and the elimination of graft and corruption. Negro voters began to support this program, but were restrained by distrust. They feared that the planters still planned their disenfranchisement. If this fear could have been removed, and as far as it was removed, the power of the Negro vote in the South was certain to go gradually toward reform. It was this contingency that the poor whites of all grades feared. It meant to them a reestablishment of the subordination under Negro labor, which they had suffered during slavery. They therefore interposed by violence to increase the natural antagonism between Southerners of the planter class and Northerners who represented the military dictatorship as well as capital, and also to increase the fear of the Negroes that the planters might try to re-enslave them. The planters certainly were not disposed to make any permanent alliance with carpetbaggers like Chamberlain. After all, they were Northerners, recent enemies, and were responsible for the taxation that had gone before reform. The efforts at reform, therefore, at first widely applauded one by one, began to go down before a new philosophy which represented understanding between the planters and the poor whites. This, again, was not an easy thing for the planters to swallow, but it was accompanied by deference to their social status, by eagerness on the part of the poor whites to check the demands of the Negroes by any means, and by willingness to do the dirty work of the revolution that was coming, with its blood and crass cruelties, its bitter words, upheaval and turmoil. This was the birth and being of the Ku Klux Klan. Before the war, there had been violent southern anti-Negro propaganda on racial lines, but that had been mainly for consumption in the North. Northerners traveling in the South were always astonished at finding it accompanied by peculiar evidences of social equality and closer intimacies. In other words, there were no deep racial antagonism except in the case of poor whites where it had a tremendous economic foundation. After the war, the race division, so long as the economic foundation was equitable, would have become less and less pronounced had it not been emphasized with determination in the application of the Mississippi Plan. David? It is one of the anomalies of history that political and economic reform in the North and West after 1873 joined hands with monopoly and reaction in the South to oppress and re-enslave labor. Every effort was made by careful propaganda to induce the nation to believe that the Southern wing of the Democratic Party was fighting the same kind of corruption as the North and that corruption was represented in the South solely by carpetbaggers and Negroes. This was only partly true in the South, for their labor, too, was fighting corruption and dishonesty. So far as land and capital, which were secretly abetting graft in the order of to escape taxation, would allow it to do so without disenfranchisement. But the South now began to use diplomacy so badly lacking in its previous leadership since the war. Adroitly, it stopped attacking abolitionists and even carpetbaggers, and gradually transferred all the blame for post-war misgovernment to the Negroes. The Negro vote and graft were indissolubly linked in the public mind by incessant propaganda. 
Race repulsion, race hate, and race pride were increased by every subtle method, until the Negro and his friends were on the defensive and the Negro himself almost convinced of his own guilt. Negro haters and pseudoscientists raised their heads and voices in triumph. Lamar of Mississippi fraudulently elected to Congress uncutuously unconsciously oh unconsciously unctuously unctuously okay there we go unctuously praised Sumner with his tongue in his cheek and Louisiana solemnly promised to give Negroes full political and civil rights with equal education for Negro children a deliberate lie which is absolutely proven by the revelations of the last 50 years the South was impelled to brute force and deliberate deception in the dealing with the Negro because it had been astonished and disappointed not by the Negro's failure, but by his success and promise of greater success. All of this came at a time when the best conscious of the nation, the conscious which was heir to the enthusiasm of abolitionist democracy, was turned against the only power which did not support democracy in the South. The truth of the insistence of Stevens was manifest. Without land and without vocation, the Negro voter could not gain that economic independence which would protect his vote. Unless, therefore, his political and civil rights were supported by the United States Army, he was doomed to practical reenslavement. But the United States Army in the 70s, the representative of the party of political corruption, while its political opponents represented land monopoly and capitalistic reaction in the South. When, therefore, the conscience of the United States attacked corruption, and at the same time attacked in the Republican Party the only power that could support democracy in the South. It was a paradox too tragic to explain, and it deceived leading reformers like Carl Schurz, damn it, Schurz. Damn it Carl, um, into consenting to throw the poor, ignorant black workers whom he had helped enfranchise to the lions of land monopoly and capitalistic control, which proposed to devour them and did. Boys, it's, it's, he's on it this chapter he is oh my god this this may be the single best chapter he's done yeah um and the south reforms sought to follow the northern model and the carpetbag capitalists turned towards the purging of the civil service and the throttling of monopoly in this they gained the backing of many intelligent negroes but for one thing they could have got the bulk of the negro vote and that's one thing that the negroes was the Negro's distrust of the honesty of the planter's objects. Did the planter want reform, or did he want re-enslavement of Negro labor? As a matter of fact, the planter got the beginning of reform and the administration of his own government in South Carolina, in Mississippi, and even in Louisiana. But he was aware that if that movement went far, it would prove that the Negro vote could be appealed to and made effective in good government as well as bad. This he did not want. As the South Carolina Democratic Convention said in April... April 1868, in an address to the colored people, it is impossible that your present power can endure, whether you use it for good or ill. And that's just wearing it right on your sleeve. Yeah. Uh, Back of this was the knowledge that honest labor government would be more fatal to land monopoly and industrial privilege than government by bribery and graft. The white South, therefore, quickly substituted violence and renewal of the war in order to get rid of the possibility of good government supported by black labor votes. There was not a single honest Southerner who did not know that any reasonable political program which included a fair chance for the Negro to get an honest wage, personal protection, land to work, and schools for his children would have received the staunch, loyal, and unyielding support of the overwhelming mass of Negro voters. But this program, when ostensibly offered to the Negro, concealed the determination to reduce him practically to slavery. He knew this, and in his endeavor to escape floundered through bribery, corruption, and murder, seeking a path to peace, freedom, and the income of the civilized man. The South had as itself to blame. It showed no historic sign of favoring emancipation before the war, rather the contrary. It showed no disposition to yield to the offer of of recompense emancipation, which Abraham Lincoln repeatedly made. It showed no desire to yield to emancipation with corresponding curtailed political power, as Congress suggested. It showed no disposition to reform democracy with the Negro vote. It relied on stubborn, brute force. Meantime, the leaders of Northern Capital and Finance were still afraid of the return of Southern political power after the lapse of the military dictatorship. This power was larger than before the war, and it was bound to grow. 
if it were to be used in conjunction with northern liberals, it might still mean the reduction of the tariff and the reduction of monopoly and an attack upon new financial methods and upon concentrated control in industry. There was now no sentiment like freedom to which the northern industrialists could appeal. It was therefore necessary for northern capital to make terms with the dominant south. Thus, both the liberal and conservative North found themselves willing to sacrifice the interest of labor in the South to the interest of capital. Oh, there's a surprise. The temporary dictatorship, as represented by the Freedmen's Bureau, was practically ended by 1870. This led to an increase in violence on the, on the part of the Ku Klux Klan to subject black labor to strict domination by capital and to break Negro political power. The outbreak bought by a temporary return of the military dictatorship but the return was unpopular in the North and aroused bitter protest in the South. Yet the end that planters and poor whites envisioned, and as this fight went on, and that large numbers of the Northern capitalists were fighting for, was a movement in the face of modern progress. It did not go to the lengths of disenfranchising the whole laboring class, black and white, because it dared not do this, although this was its logical end. It did disenfranchise black labor with the aid of white Southern labor and with the silent acquiescence of white Northern labor. The white capitalists of the South saw a chance of getting rid of the necessity of treating with and yielding to the voting power of fully half the laboring class. It seized this opportunity, knowing it thus was setting back the economic progress of the world. That the United States, instead of marching forward through the preliminary revolution by which the petty bourgeois and laboring class armed with the vote were fighting the power of capital, was disenfranchising a part of labor and, on the other hand, allowing great capital a chance for enormous expansion in the country. And this enormous expansion got its main chance through the 33 electoral votes, which the counting of the full black population in the South gave to that section. It was only necessary now that this political power of the South should be used in behalf of capital and not for the strengthening of labor and universal suffrage. This was the bargain of 1876. Reconstruction, therefore, in the South degenerated into a fight of rivals to control property and through that to control the labor vote. This rivalry between dictators lets you graft corruption as they bid against each other for the vote of the Negro, while meantime, Negro labor in its ignorance and poverty was agonizing for ways of escape. Northern capital compromised, and Southern capital accept race hate and black disenfranchisement as a permanent program of exploitation. In certain ways, this great struggle of a laboring class of five black millions was epitomized by the appearance of 16 of their representatives in the Federal Congress from 1869 to 76. These are the men, their states, and their service. Here are Revels, Senator, Mississippi. Blanche K. Bruce, Senator, Mississippi. Jefferson P. Long, Congressman, Georgia. Jo Joseph H. Rainey, Congressman, South Carolina. Robert C. DeLarge, Congressman, South Carolina. Robert Brown Elliott, Congressman, South Carolina. Benjamin S. Turner, Congressman, Alabama. Josiah T. Walls, Congressman, Florida. Alonzo J. Ranzier, Congressman, South Carolina. James T. Rapier, Congressman, Alabama. Richard H. Kane, Congressman, South Carolina. John R. Lynch, Congressman, Mississippi. Charles E. Nash, Congressman, Louisiana. John A. Hyman, Congressman, North Carolina. Jeer Harrelson, Congressman, Alabama. Robert Smalls, Congressman, South Carolina. Several others, like Menard of Florida, Pinchback of Louisiana, Lee, and others had excellent titles to their seats, but did not gain them. Twelve of these men, who were the earliest to enter Congress, were ex-slaves or born of slave parents and brought up where Negroes were denied education. On the other hand, the four, the four had received a more or less complete college education in the North and abroad. Five of the congressmen were lawyers. Two, Elliot and Rapier, had unusual training and ability. Rhodes sneers at these men. They left no mark on the legislation of their time. None of them, in comparison with their white associates, attained the least distinction. But Blaine, who knew them and served with them, or served with most of them, said, the colored men who took the seats in both the Senate and the House did not appear ignorant or helpless. They were, as a rule, studious, earnest, ambitious men whose public conduct would be honorable to any race. Most of the colored congressmen had the experience in state legislatures and in public office. When these men entered Congress, questions of Reconstruction and of the economic and social condition in the North and West were before it. These included the exploitation of public lands, the development of railroads, the question of money, and the relation of the races in the South. The Negro congressmen especially had three objects to secure themselves civil rights, to aid education, and to settle the question of the political disabilities of their former masters. 
This last question became of paramount importance. Long of Georgia was in favor of removing disabilities if the Southerners proved loyal to the new legislation. Revels supported amnesty, but Rainey felt that it had led to force and murder. Elliot protested against amnesty, saying that the men seeking relief were responsible for the crimes perpetrated against the loyal men in the South, and that this proposal put a premium on disloyalty and treason. All the Negro congressmen pled for civil rights to their race. It was here that Robert Brown Elliott made one of the greatest speeches in a dramatic situation seldom equaled in Congress. Forney describes the incident. Mr. Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, of which slavery was the cornerstone, spoke January 6, 1874, and Mr. Elliott, the colored champion of the liberal race, of the liberated race, followed him the next day. I cannot describe the house when these two men addressed it, especially when the African answered the Caucasian. Here we have a new history, a history that may indeed be repeated, but which stands alone in the novelty of all its surroundings and in the eloquence of all its lessons. Mr. Elliot, the last speaker, is a full-blooded black, a native of Boston, Massachusetts. Here he was born August 11, 1842. Educated in England, he was not of age when the rebellion broke out, and in 1868, in his 26th year, was a member of the South Carolina legislature, and elected to Congress from Columbia District in 1872. He received 21,000 votes against 1,000 votes for the Democratic candidate W.H. McCaw. Had any man predicted that this colored boy, while attending school in 1853 at High Holborn Academy at Eton, Eton College, England, in 1855, would sit in Congress from the capital of the proud state of South Carolina in 1874, and would there confute the ablest apostle of the old slave power? Yeah, confute, okay. He would have been pronounced a madman. Elliot, defending against Stephen's civil rights for Negroes, said, Sir, it is scarcely twelve years since that gentleman shocked the civilized world by announcing the birth of a government which was rested on human slavery as its cornerstone. The progress of events has swept away the, that pseudo-government which rested on greed, pride, and tyranny, and the race whom he then ruthlessly spurned out and trampled on here to meet him in debate, and to demand that the rights which are who vainly sought to overthrow a government which they could not prostitute to the base uses of slavery, shall be accorded to those even in the darkness of slavery kept their allegiance true to freedom and the Union. Sir, the gentleman from Georgia has learned so much since 1861, but he is still a laggard. Let him put away entirely the false and fatal theories which have so greatly marred an otherwise enviable record. Let him accept in its fullness and beneficence the great doctrine that American citizenship carries with it every civil and political right which manhood can confer. Let him lend his influence and with all his masterly ability to compete to complete with the proud structure, with a proud structure of legislation, which makes his nation worthy of the great declaration which heralded his birth. And he will have done that, will mostly redeem his reputation in the eyes of the world, and best vindicate the wisdom of that policy which has permitted him to regain the seat upon this floor. The matter of education, Rainey of South Carolina was one of the first Americans to demand national aid for education. Walls of Florida protested that national aid was not an invasion of state rights and showed that the discrimination in the distribution of state funds. The colored congressman advocated local improvements, including distribution of public lands, public buildings, and appropriations for rivers and harbors in Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, and South Carolina. Aside from these more personal questions, Negro congressmen discussed national economic matters. Walls of Florida and Lynch of Mississippi asked protective tariffs for local products, including cotton, lumber, and sugar. Walls voted, voted for an appropriation for the Centennial Exposition of 1876 and urged the recognition of Cuba. Okay. Good. Hello. The recognition of good, Cuba. Good, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hyman championed relief of the Cherokee Indians. Okay, good. Uh, Bruce opposed the restriction of Chinese immigration, arraigned our selfish policy towards Indians, and especially advocated improving the navigation of the Mississippi and protecting life and property from its overflow. This is all good. Uh, the words of these black men were perhaps the last clear, earnest expression of the democratic theory of American government and Congress. 
Congressman DeLarge of South Carolina said in 1871, when I heard the gentleman from New York, Mr. Cox, on Tuesday, last hurl his shafts against the members of my race, charging that through their ignorance they had brought about these excesses, I thought he should have remembered that for the ignorance of that portion of the people, he and his party associates are responsible, not those people themselves. While there may have been extravagance and corruption resulting from the placing of improper men in official positions, and this is part of the cause of the existing state of things, these evils have been brought by, about by the men identified with the race to which gentlemen from New York belongs, and not by our race. Okay. All right. Congressman Rainey of South Carolina said in the same debate, Sir, I ask this House, I ask the country, I ask white men, I ask Democrats, I ask Republicans whether the Negroes have presumed to take improper advantage of the majority they hold in that state by disregarding the interest of the minority. They have not. Our convention, which met in 1868 and in which the Negroes were in a large majority, did not pass any prescriptive or disenfranchising acts, but adopted a liberal constitution securing alike equal rights to all citizens, white and black, male and female, as far as possible. Mark you, we did not discriminate, although we had a majority. Our constitution towers up in its majesty, which provisions for the equal protection of all classes and citizens. It was not then race and culture calling out the South in 1876. It was property and privilege shrieking to its kind, and privilege and property heard and recognized the voice of its own. The bargain of 1876 was essentially an undertaking by which the federal government ceased to sustain the right to vote of half of the laboring population of the South and left capital as represented by the old planter class, the new northern capitalists, and the capitalists that began to rise out of the poor whites with a control of labor greater than in any modern industrial state in civilized lands. Out of these, out of that, there has arisen in the South an exploitation of labor unparalleled in modern times, with a government in which all pretense at party alignment or regard for universal suffrage is given up. That methods of government have gone uncriticized, and elections are by secret understanding and manipulation. The dictatorship of capital in the South is complete. The military dictatorship was withdrawn, and the representatives of northern capital gave up all efforts to lead the Negro vote. The new dictatorship became a manipulation of the white labor vote, which followed the lines of similar control in the north, while it proceeded to deprive the black voter by violence and force of any vote at all. The rivalry of these two classes of, of labor and their completion neutralized the labor vote in the south. The black voters struggled and appealed, but it was in vain and the United States, reinforced by the increased political power of the South, based on the disenfranchisement of black voters, took its place to reinforce the capitalistic dictatorship of the United States, which became the most powerful in the world, and which backed the new industrial imperialism and degraded colored labor the world over. This meant a tremendous change in the whole intellectual and spiritual development of civilization in the South and in the United States. Because of the predominant political power of the South, built on disenfranchised labor, the United States was turned into re a reactionary force. It became the cornerstone of that new imperialism, which is subjecting the labor of yellow, brown, and black peoples to the dictation of capitalism, organized on a world basis. And it has not only brought nearer the revolution by which the power of capitalism is to be challenged, but also it is transforming the fight to the sinister aspect of the fight on racial lines embittered by awful memories. God, the voice is going off. Yeah, no, he's he's killing and he's railing on imperialism and he's talking about something very important here is that racism is the source of reaction in the United States because of the South. And it's because of that source of, of reaction that we were able to rise to an imperial power because you have to have reactions supporting imperialist war after imperialist war after imperialist war. Yeah. Bup, 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 bup. It is argued that Negro suffrage was bad because it failed, and at the same time that it was a failure, its failure was proof of its badness. Negro suffrage failed because it was overthrown by brute force. Even if it had been the best government on earth, force exercised by a majority of richer, more intelligent, and more experienced men could have overthrown it. It was not overthrown so long as the military dictatorship of the North sustained it. But the South proved by appropriate propaganda that Negro government was the worst ever seen and that it threatened civilization. They suited their propaganda to their audience. They had tried the accusation of laziness, but that was refuted by a restoration of agriculture to the pre-war level and beyond. They tried the accusation of ignorance, but this was answered by the Negro schools. It happened that the accusation of incompetence impressed the North not simply because of the moral revolt that there against graft and dishonesty, but because the North had never been thoroughly converted to the idea of Negro equality. 
When, therefore, the North, even granting that all the South said of the Negro was not true, contemplated possibilities, it paused. Did the nation want blacks with power sitting in the Senate and in the House of Representatives, accumulating wealth and entering the learned professions? Would this not eventually and inevitably lead to social equality and even to black sons and daughters-in-laws and mulatto descendants? Was it possible to contemplate such eventualities? Under such circumstances, it was much easier to believe the accusations of the South and to listen to the proof which bigotry and social science hastened to adduce of the inferiority of the Negro. The North seized upon the new Darwinism, the survival of the fittest, to prove that what they had attempted in the South was an impossibility, and that they did this in the face of the facts which were before them, the examples of Negro efficiency, of Negro brains, of phenomenal possibilities of advancement. I do like that you just read biology being used sarcastically by Du Bois discussing bigotry, uh, just as bigotry. That was pretty good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, moreover, Americans saw throughout the world the shadow of the coming a- change of the philanthropic attitude which had dominated the early 19th century with regard to the backward races. International and commercial imperialism began to get a vision. Within the very echo of that philanthropy which had abolished the slave trade was the beginning of a new industrial slavery of black and brown and yellow workers in Africa and Asia. Arising from this, as a result of this economic foundation, came the change in the attitude towards these dark people. There were no longer brothers in black, they were inferiors. These inferiors were to be governed for their own good. They were to be raised out of sloth and laziness by being compelled to work. The whole attitude of Europe was reflected in America and had found in America support for its own attitude. The Great Republic of the West was trying an impossible experiment. They were trying to make white men out of black men. It could not be done. It was a mistake to conceive it. The North and Europe were still under the sway of individual laissez-faire in the industry and hands-off in the government. It was easy, therefore, for the North to persuade itself that whatever happened politically in the South was right. If the majority did not want the Negro rule or Negro participation in government, the majority was right, and they would not allow themselves to stop and ask how that majority was made." They knew that an organized inner group was compelling the mass of, poor, of white people to act as a unit, was pounding them by false social sanctions and into false uniformity. Does this not feel, and I'm sorry, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm, if I'm feeling this incorrectly, but these last couple chapter, or paragraphs yeah. where Du Bois is talking specifically about the white northerners who, who yeah. come off with the right intentions. They come off, they say the right things in public normally, and they'll, they'll talk about equality, but there's this sinking feeling in the back of their head that is so susceptible to propaganda and so willing to accept the propaganda. That, to me, feels very reminiscent of... And they're willing to see any majority, any group of people organizing, uh, as, oh, well, the, the, they, they're saying it's right, so it must be true. I must yeah. accept this because I don't really believe it deep down. That to me feels a lot like the reaction we saw in, to Cuba. Oh, when any, the any color, color revolution. revolution kicked yeah, off. Yeah. Yeah. Was... You had all of these kind of faux or, or ostensible leftists all of a sudden so willing to jump because they don't really believe it. Yeah. They don't really believe what they're saying. And when push comes to shove, the, it just needs the littlest bit of propaganda to reinforce what they deep down believe for them to go. Nope. Yep. Authoritarian. Bad, bad, yeah. bad, 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 bad. Everything yeah. I read was everything Absolutely. I thought was true. Yep. It's bad. Yeah. No, that, that I mean, that's exactly what it is. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it doesn't work unless there's a deep seated belief in there to, to grow. You, you got to water pr- propaganda beliefs, right? There's got to be a seed there. That's why so many of them, uh, while they're, they're grotesquely misconstrued when they do exist, they start with a little kernel of truth. And obviously some of them don't do that, but when they don't do that, it takes absolute racism to, to do, right? You have to have these, these yeah. preformed notions and then propaganda can make those preformed notions grow and they don't have to be very strong. No. They just have to slightly exist, just enough of a pause. That's why we talk about, you know, even if you're like, hey, you're talking about another country, you're like, hey, I don't totally support them. I don't like this mistake, right? As soon as you say that, it's, oh, no, I mean, that, that, there, there's the culprit. That, that mistake, that admits they're terrible, right? Exactly. I, they think of that past socialist countries, current socialist or anti imperialist countries. You can debunk every single lie lie by lie by lie by lie by lie until people are completely stripped out and like wow everything i've been told is a lie and then they hear one more lie and they're right back to it yep if that part of the white south which had a vision of democracy and was willing to grant equality to negroes of equal standing had been sustained long enough by a standing federal police democracy could have been established in the south 
But brute force was allowed to use its unchecked power in the actions of the whites to destroy the possibility of democracy in the South and thereby make the transition from democracy to plutocracy all the easier and more inevitable. Uh, uh, once again, stating the need for organized, forceful action to support a fledgling revolution that takes place. Uh, this time we're talking about, you know, needing forces in the South in order to enforce uh, this new revolution of freedmen. Uh, this can be extrapolated to a lot of different scenarios where you say, oh, no, we don't need anything. Dismantle it all, tear it all down, and we don't need it anymore. Um, no, you are going to need some sort of organized force to to enforce your revolution. And the South, after Reconstruction, is a perfect example of it. Du Bois is showing us. Through the rift of this opposition, between votes for and against the Negro, between high and low tariff, between free land and land monopoly, plutocracy drove a silent coach and four. What the South did in 1876 was to make good its refusal either to give up slavery or to yield the political power based on the counting of slaves. And so the South rode the wind into the whirlwind and accomplished what it sought. Did it pay? Did it settle either the Negro's problems or any problems of wealth, labor, or human uplift? On the contrary, it made the government of the South a system of secret manipulations with lying and cheating. It made its religion fundamental hypocrisy, and the South knows today that the essential Negro problem is just as it was. How far dare it let the Negro be a modern man? It was also clear and right and logical. A nation could not exist half slave and half free. If it tried, either its massive laborers would by force and competition sink into the depths of exploited, ignorant poverty, or rising in bloody revolt, break the monopoly of land and materials and endow the mass with more equal income and more political power to maintain their freedom. So in America came civil war over the slavery of labor, and the end was not peace, but the endeavor really and honestly to remove the cause of strife, to give the black freedmen and the white laborer land and education and power to conduct the state in the interest of labor and not of landed oligarchy. Labor lurched forward after it had paid in blood for the chance, and labor, especially black labor, cried for light and land and leading. The world laughed. It laughed north, it laughed west, but in the south, it roared with hysterical, angry, vengeful laughter. It said, look at these N-words. They are black and poor and ignorant. How can they rule those of us who are white and have been rich and have at our command all the wisdom and skill? Back to slavery with the dumb brutes. Still the brutes strove on and up with silent, fearful persistency. They restored the lost crops, they established schools, they gave votes to the poor whites, they established democracy, and they even saved a pittance of land and capital out of their slave-bounded wage. The masters feared their former slave success far more than their anticipated failure. They lied about the Negroes, they accused them of theft, crime, moral enormities, and laughable grotesqueries. They forestalled the danger of a united Southern labor movement by appealing to the fear of the and hate of white labor and offering them alliance and into the fear and hate of by offering them alliance and leisure. They encouraged them to ridicule Negroes and beat them, kill and burn their bodies. The planters even gave the poor whites their daughters in marriage and raised a new oligarchy on the tottering, depleted foundations of the old oligarchy. A mass of new rulers, the more ignorant, intolerant, and ruthless because of their inferiority complex. And thus was built a solid South, impervious to reason, justice, or fact. With this arose a solid North, a North born of which never meant to abolish Negro slavery. Because of its profits were built on it, but who had been gradually made by idealists and laborers and freed slaves to refuse more land to slavery, to refuse to catch and return slaves, and finally to fight for freedom since this preserved cotton, tobacco, sugar, and the Southern market. David, take us home. Then this new North, fired by a vision of concentrated economic power and profit greater than the world had visioned, tried to stop war and hasten back to industry. But the blind, angry, bewildered South threatened to block the building of this new industrial oligarchy by a political power increased by the very abolition of slavery. Until the North had to yield to democracy and give black labor the power with which uh, with which white southern landholders threatened northern industry. In return, northern capital bribed black and white labor in the south and white and black labor in the north. It, it thrust debt, concessions, and graft on the south, while in the north it divided labor into exploiting and exploited groups of skilled and highly paid craftsmen who might and did become capitalists and ma a mass of ignorant, disenfranchised, imported foreign slaves.' 
The West transforms its laboring peasant farmers into land speculators and investors and united its interests through the railways of Solid South in return for non-interference with big business. God wept, but mattered little to an unbelieving age. What mattered most was the world wept and is still weeping and blind with tears and blood. For there began to rise in America in 1876 a new capitalism and a new enslavement of labor. Home labor and cultured lands, appeased and misled by a ballot whose power dictatorship of vast capital strictly curtailed, was bribed by a high wage and political office to unite in an exploitation of white, yellow, brown, and black labor in lesser lands and breeds without the law especially workers of the new world, folks who were American and for whom America was, became ashamed of their destiny. Sons of ditch diggers aspired to be the spawn of bastard kings and thieving aristocrats, rather than of rough-handed children of dirt and toil. The immense profit from this new exploitation and worldwide commerce enabled a guild of millionaires to engage the grandest engineers, the wisest men of science, as well as pay high wage to the more intelligent labor, at the same time to have left enough surplus to make more thorough the dictatorship of capital over the state and over the popular vote, not only in Europe and America, but in Asia and Africa." The world wept because within the exploiting group of a new world masters, greed and jealousy became so fierce that they fought for trade and markets and materials and slaves all over the world until at last in 1914 uh, the world flamed in a war. The fantastic structure fell, leaving grotesque profits and poverty, plenty and starvation, empire and democracy. Staring at each other across world depression, and the rebuilding, whether it comes now or a century later, will and must go back to the basic principles of reconstruction in the United States during 1867 to 1876. Land, light, and leading for slaves, black, brown, yellow, and white, under a dictatorship of the proletariat. And then he ends the chapter with a poem, Prophet. What profit hath the sea of her deep-throated threnody? What profit hath the sun who stands staring on space with idle hands? And what should God himself acquire from all the sun's blood and fire? Eons. All the eons. Oh, blood all, and fire. all the eons, blood and fire. Fanny Stearns Davis from Crackadon. And that is the end of chapter 14. A banger of a chapter if there yes. was one in this book uh, yeah this this has been a it's all it, it, and this is a very it, this is very marks in what it did because we spent uh, basically the uh, boys spent all of those chapters where we outlined the you know all the governments of the south and exactly what happened in every single state in every single instance and he used that as the unassailable foundation to go look this wasn't a tale of theft and mismanagement and, 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 and graft and all of these other things. This was absolutely a dictatorship of capital from the North aligning with a wannabe dictatorship of capital in the South coming together to quash what should have been the fledgling proletarian revolution that the Civil War was spawning. That's mm -hmm. exactly what it was. It was nothing other than that. And these attempts to make it something else are absolutely founded in nothing but racism. Yes. Yeah, 100%. I, something I actually like that you bring up, Marks, there, because even more than capital, I do not want people just skimming through this book, right? We're sitting here reading it word for word. I certainly hope people read the whole thing. But if you know someone who needs to read this book and you're going and they're going to say hey I'm going to read one chapter unless we stumble upon just another banger of that level that also happens to summarize so much of the book so well that's the chapter yeah that is that is 100% the chapter that is the, um, the 26 to 32 of this book that is the 26 to 32 and let we're we're open to be wrong there could yeah. be more there's more we have coming. not read the whole thing yet we we will see We'll see, but that that was an absolute masterclass of a chapter right there. Um, highly recommend. That's one that I'm going to probably go back and re-listen to just because I'm sure there are more nuggets in there that I would want to yeah. pick out. Um, so very, very happy with how, how Du Bois ended that, uh, which sets us up next week to start Chapter 15, Founding the Public School. This one should be uh, hopefully a little bit lighter, I'm, I'm hoping. Uh, we'll, we'll see. 
but I'm interested to see this. This will be very interesting to see what it goes and the the subtitle heading to that to lead off for next week as we do. How the freedmen yearn to learn and to know, and with the guiding hand of the Freedmen's Bureau and the Northern School Marm, helped establish the public school in the South and taught his own teachers in the New England College transplanted to the Black South. So that being said. We are going to end there for this week. This has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. Uh, if you wanted to reach out to us for any reason or get in touch with us, there are a number of different ways you can do that. One of which is to email us, marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Uh, another way would be to get us on Twitter. We're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, DMs are open and the link to our Discord is in our Twitter bio. And the third way to reach us is the aforementioned Discord server, where we will... Uh, yeah, as, as is tradition, talk about Final Fantasy 14. Uh, we will talk about, uh, the K-pop group twice because that is our want. We will do that occasionally. Um, but more than that, we will just have a very tight knit and nice community of people that want to help each other out. Um, want to give, give a, a sounding board for people that are, that are just asking questions or, or just want a community of like-minded people that they can hang around, uh, and, and communicate with to know that they're not so alone out there because it can feel that way sometimes for sure. Um, book club, uh, it will be doing, uh, Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch, uh, will be what they are working on this time. So if you are interested in that work or have had interest in going through it with a reading group, uh, that will be happening in Discord, uh, starting, I think it would have started this week. So you are able to get in on the ground floor of that. Um, that being said, uh, David, it is time for our disclaimer. It is time for, it is always time for our disclaimer. Um, so basically me and Nathan, we started this podcast. Uh, we were just going to sit down and read Capital. And that's not a book to read alone because it's a book of theory and any book of theory or history you should discuss with others. You should make sure you're getting the understanding and, and, uh, uh getting all the details and the context around it and how it relates to you today the best you can. And so me and Nathan, we started that, that reading group just with each other and we thought, hmm, this could use a little more people. We'll record it just in case. And we did. And it turns out we, we were able to turn it into a podcast. Uh, so that we have all of you, all our listeners. Um, and since that, we've always kind of had a vision. So hopefully, whatever party, whatever group you're out there organizing with, um, hopefully in your political education group, your reading group, whatever, you're reading these books. And we could be another voice, another source of input, another source of deeper context in those discussions. Uh, save for that, save they're reading something shorter or more applicable to the things you're organizing around. Um, hopefully, we can be that reading group for you uh, as you read along with this and give you that context and give you that input and say for that whether it's a work like say capital where we kind of summarized it always a work like this where we read word for word and we just kind of become an enhanced ebook whatever we could do to make that work more accessible to you so it's out there guiding your actions because as soon as those act are got as soon as those actions are guided by theory uh they become praxis uh theory in action uh praxis does not exist without theory and without praxis theory is completely useless they are tied at the hip they go hand in hand Amen. As always, once again, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye.